Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's something deeply weird going on with our job market. Americans quit their jobs at record levels last year, a phenomenon that gathered the clever title, The Great Resignation. Despite the fact that wages are moving upwards after years of stagnation, there are more than 10 million job openings out there, the highest number in decades. And that means the percentage of our population in the labor force is stuck down at 1970s levels. We dig into this American labor mystery, and then our own Luke Sai joins us to talk about the foods we eat when we're sick. That's coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So here is the central question I want to explore today. If there are a bunch of jobless people... And there are a bunch of job openings. Why aren't the people taking the jobs? Or put a little bit differently, if U.S. firms want to hire, why aren't they creating positions that actually attract workers? And to explore that, we're going to do something just a little different and look at our unique problems in a global context with help from people who think a lot, not just about the U.S., but other similar countries. So Today, to talk about what's wrong with the U.S. job market, we're joined by Ulrika Melmendier, professor of economics and finance at UC Berkeley. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We're also joined by Callum Williams, senior economics editor at The Economist. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Ulrika, let's lay out what's happening. How unusual is the situation with quits and job openings in the U.S. labor market, sort of thinking historically about the U.S.? Yeah, for the U.S., it's certainly quite the unusual situation. Uh, We are mostly focused on the rate of voluntary quits from work right now, and um, that rate has been at an all-time high, which came to the surprise of um, many of the economists, particularly labor economists. Um, of course, these numbers fluctuate by recessions and booms, but to have such a high quit rate in the current economic situation, I would say has never been seen in the U.S. before. And Callum, uh, thinking comparatively across the countries that you sort of look at and you have a great uh, article that you wrote in The Economist, how similar is the U.S. situation to other kind of similar economies that are in our same kind of economic basket? Um, so it's not unique, but it is fairly unusual. So there are a few other countries where there has been a rise in uh, 
uh, in, in quits, voluntary quits, uh, although the definitions are different. So you, uh, you can sort of see this happening in the UK. And there's a little bit of it uh, of evidence of that this is happening in Italy. But in the majority of, uh, of other rich countries globally, um, there's really no evidence of this happening at all. So if you look at Japan, for example, the number of people who are quitting is pretty much at an all time low. And even in Canada, which in many ways is a similar economy to the US, the uh, number of Canadians who are, who are quitting their job because they're dissatisfied with their work is also very low. So it's, it's not unique, but it is pretty unusual in the US. And Callum, you kind of take issue with the idea that even if people are quitting in the U.S., that that we can know the reasons why they're quitting and that the reasons are because they hate their jobs. Well, I would put a more positive spin on it. So if you actually look at the data from Gallup, which is a survey company, which asks people, are you satisfied or engaged or uh, various other kind of positive things? Are you satisfied with your work? That's pretty much an all time high. So I think it's hard to make the case that people are quitting because they're dissatisfied on average. Um, I think it's a more positive story, actually. Uh, if you look back historically at the labour market data, there's a very, very strong correlation going back a long way between the number of vacancies in the economy, uh, i.e. the number of kind of open job postings that people can apply to, and the number of quits, the number of people who are quitting their job each month. It's very, very strongly correlated. And actually, if you take into account how many vacancies there are at the moment and we can talk about why there are so many vacancies maybe later the number of quits actually isn't unusual at all it's actually exactly where you would expect it to be given the level of vacancies so part of that was used in this piece to argue that there really is no such thing as a great resignation it's a it's totally a story of cyclical labor demand and something that tends to be quite overhyped i think hmm. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, Ulrika, some of the, gr- the the groupings of workers within this data. seems like some people really stand out. I mean, we've got – seems like a lot of people are retiring early, so we kind of have an early retirees group. And also very young people seem – you know, 16 to 24 seem like they are turning over their jobs more than they had in the past. Do you agree with that sort of evaluation of the data? And what do we think is going on with these different groups? Yeah, I think your, your numbers are right. And um, it speaks to the argument uh, Callum just brought up. So um, for some of these groups, it is um, certainly true that the outside opportunities um, play a huge role in allowing people to quit, in particular in the US, where there's otherwise less of a social safety net and a protection of workers. However, we also, when we zoom into the different industries, um, I think we see slightly different effects. We see um, clearly an emphasis on what's happening in the teaching profession and the healthcare profession. And there, um, I would argue um, that other reasons are likely at work. Um, so to start with, you know, people burned out from having gone through these um, hard times of doing the job um, during COVID uh, might play a role. But also going back to the notion of the big quit um, or the great resignation, um, the realization that um, while this job may mean different things than they thought, um, not being in person at school has different implications uh, than they thought. And uh, that change in people's experience, I would maintain, does play a role in what's going on in the U.S. as well. That's so interesting. So even if people might be generally satisfied at the you know entire population level, there might be individual jobs or individual uh, professions or, or labor categories where the value of those jobs is really shifting. That makes a, a lot of sense to me. I, I want to ask about 
this sort of associated phenomenon. So, you know, there was the great resignation narrative, whether we fully buy it or not, kind of got going a little uh, earlier last year. And then we saw really job openings really start to go up a lot in the middle towards the end of the year. Ulrika, like, why do we think these job openings are are spiking like this? Really, to what, what do look, at least to, to my eye, looking at the data for, for what we have, do really look like historic levels. Yeah, so this is an excellent point, the timing, which you are zooming in here. And I think that also pokes a little bit hole into this um, argument. It's maybe... Uh, all made up, although, you know, largely I have to say I agree with a lot of what uh, Calvin wrote in, 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 the, in his excellent article. But um, there is this perception that this quitting happened before that a huge spike in openings was really kicking in, at least in some um, of the industry. So that's curious. So people seem to have been willing to take the risk even before it was really in, in the numbers that they have all these outside opportunities. And um, that, again, speaks maybe to people just not being willing to pursue um, doing the same job um, they did before. Mm -hmm. And um, also, if you, again, look by different industries, industries where the daily workplace life has been more or less affected, you see differences. I do want to add one piece to this is we are here focusing on people quitting, what's going on with the job openings and people actually leaving the job. But also notice what is happening with people who are actually staying in their job. So um, employer after employer, I talk to say locally at, you know, on, the, on campus talking to deans is somewhat exasperated why, say, uh, the faculty assistant who was happily doing their job five days a week on campus after having experience working from home is saying, nope, not doing that anymore. I, I mean, I'm staying in my job, but if you want me to come in five days, I'm not um, doing that anymore. I, I really like uh, working from home. So I think we have to start seeing these tendencies, um, the work changing in combination with quitting. And we can also, um, you know, talking about people being happier at their work than they've ever been. Well, we can also reverse the causality. Employers feel the winds of change and realize they need to offer something else. They're trying to preempt even larger quit rates. Yeah. Callum, you know, our labor participation rate, you know, the percentage of Americans that are that are working is really so low. <laughs> um, kind of shocking when I when I took a look at it. You know, it's really comparable to the 1970s uh, before a lot more women had gone into the workforce here in the U.S. Meanwhile, France is above pre-pandemic uh, labor force participation levels. So what worked there or didn't work here? Like why why this disjuncture? Yeah, it's such a good question. So interesting. So yeah, the US is an outlier. The the example that I often think is the most striking is if you look at female labor force participation in the US and compare that to female participation in Japan. And of course, Japan has this stereotype of being, you know, incredibly sexist and women stay at home all day and all that kind of stuff. Um, some of which is true, of course, but actually Japan, Japanese women are more likely to be in work than American women, which is, uh, has always kind of made me, you know, it's an amazing fact, really. Now, the question is, why, why, why is the US such an outlier? And people have put forward a bunch of different explanations. Some people say it's because American men are particularly addicted to video games. Uh, this is genuinely an argument that people have made. Others say it's to do with the decline in the manufacturing sector, which has been particularly steep by some measures in the U.S. Others say it's to do with the fact that the U.S., particularly in the 2000s, was, was very exposed to, to competition from China in terms of trade. Um, one example that I think is particularly convincing for me, because this is genuinely a U.S.-only phenomenon, really, 
is the opioid epi epidemic, which has been going on for a long time. And this is really, uh, you know, this results in many, many deaths in the US uh, per year. And it's not really something that you see in, in other countries. And so I think that could be, uh, in fact, potentially a very big reason why labor force participation in the US uh, is lower than it is elsewhere. Ulrika, before we get to a lot of different explanations that I'm going to throw a bunch at you after the break, I just want to uh, last sort of ground rules kind of thing. Do we think different or similar things are happening with low wage and high wage workers in the U.S.? Oh, no, I, I, I think very different things are happening. So for starters, um, the financial constraints are much more binding. The severity of what people had to experience, in particular as people were on the job, even during COVID, in, in, in many lower wage uh, jobs compared to higher wage, say, knowledge uh, workers, is, is tremendously diff different. Um, and also the um, opportunities, the outside opportunities, you know, based on your education and other socioeconomic um, uh, characteristics are tremendously different. So making this distinction, I think, is a very smart, um, uh, you know, move and uh, very important to emphasize. At the same time, I do want to say that the general notion that having lived through this pandemic or living through this pandemic actually still and experience a very different world from what we were used to and what we assumed would continue, that that has changed us and that we are different people now with different preferences and uh, who will make different decisions for years and decades to come. I think that applies globally to all socioeconomic strata. I can't wait to talk more about that, too. It would actually be wild to imagine that we wouldn't be changed by such an unusual set of circumstances. We're talking about what's wrong with the U.S. jobs market with Ulrika Melmendier, professor of economics and finance at UC Berkeley, and Callum Williams, senior economics editor at The Economist. And we do want to hear from you. Did you leave your job during the pandemic? And if you're an employer who's had a difficult time hiring or has experienced a lot of departures, are you reevaluating the wages and benefits you offer or the way that your jobs work? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, and the email address is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what's wrong with the U.S. jobs market with Ulrika Momendier, professor of economics and finance at UC Berkeley, and Callum Williams, senior economics editor at The Economist. We are, have some great uh, questions and, and comments coming in from folks uh, about what's going on. So let's take this first one. Uh, Amya tweets, this is not a puzzle. The U.S. is experiencing a surge in resignations because people are sick and tired of being treated terribly and being grossly underpaid. The pandemic has highlighted our crumbling systems and the fact that capitalism is literally killing us. I would call this one, uh, you know, Paul Krugman, economist, uh, wrote in The New York Times, you know, maybe the poor quality of U.S. jobs is one reason so many American workers are reluctant to return. Uh, Callum, we've, we've kind of taken this one as the 
the first explanation to poke holes in. Do you think, though, that there's there's some reality to this, that the pandemic showed people that certain types of jobs uh, really are bad? In some cases, for sure. Yes. Um, uh, as Ulrika says, the you know, the U.S. has a poor safety net and it has often very weak enforcement of um, labor market rules and regulations. And you have a, a, a many, many employers who do bad things to their staff. There's massive underpayment of the minimum wage, for example, in the U.S. Mi- literally millions of people are, play- are paid less than the minimum wage illegally in the U.S., so there's definitely a lot of bad stuff that's 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 happened, and um, particularly during the pandemic, what you what you did see in a in a, in a bunch of uh, companies was that you know there was very little attention paid to worker safety. The meatpacking industry was a classic example in the early part of the of the pandemic. So yes, there are definitely problems. Whether it's uh, totally accurate to say that the pandemic exposed that in general U.S. capitalism is bad is, I think, a different question. So. Um, as I say, there is good data. The only data I've seen suggests that workers on average are happier in their job than has basically ever been the case. Um, if you look at wages, um, they're growing um, pretty rapidly now, particularly for people in the worst paid jobs. They are actually growing at five to six percent a year, which is highly unusual. So I wouldn't I wouldn't want to kind of throw American capitalism away it definitely has its problems, but I think they can sometimes be exaggerated. Yeah. Let's bring in our first caller, Leah from Sunnyvale. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I quit my job back in October after over seven and a half years with the company. And the reason why I quit was twofold. One is that um, I was sort of siloed in my work position and didn't have any opportunities for advancement. And the other was I was quite frankly burnt out because I was working 12, 14 hour days and I couldn't escape from my home office. It was always there, you know, but I've been very fortunate in the fact that in my industry um, now everybody, since everybody's been working remotely, that my job opportunities have actually opened up because Hmm. now companies are willing to hire anybody anywhere because they realize that you don't have to be in office to do the position. So um, I've been looking at becoming a consultant. Um, you know, can I so uh, ask I what industry? Just so privilege. we, yeah. can I ask what industry you're in, Leah? Yeah, I'm in the pharmaceutical industry, pharmaceutical, uh, okay. in pharmacovigilance specifically. Cool, cool. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that story. I uh, hope you don't mind if we sure. bat it around a little bit here. Um, Orca, I, you know, you just uh, heard Leah's story. I think this is really interesting on the geographic uh, component of the job market. Like it seems like let's take this example. There are more jobs that you can do from anywhere now, which I do think seems to give people confidence that, hey, I'm not just looking for a job on Main Street. I'm looking for a job kind of anywhere. Yeah, indeed. So in some sense, I would say that actually strengthens – Hanon's argument, you know, who, who keeps pointing out, well, people are quitting, but there are lots of job opportunities. But we're learning uh, from Leia's story and, and data more generally. Moreover, these job opportunities are not as geographically constrained anymore as they used to be. So indeed, it is in that sense a very good time to quit and, you know, leave your job and go for these kind of opportunities. But I would also want to emphasize that, you know, she was, uh, they was telling us how she got burned out, particularly with the at-home situation. 
And um, it sounded as if she went for the jump for, for, for quitting kind of before she had uh, completely assured uh, herself of these outside opportunities. Yeah. So accumulated burnout in particular under COVID situation is, I do think, also playing a role. Yeah. And to stick with the geographic components of the of job markets, one of the things that strikes me as really interesting is, well, that's happening in jobs that can, can be done remotely, of which we're finding there are many more than we thought there were, is it also possible that some U.S. jobs are just kind of located in the wrong places? I mean, taking the San Francisco Bay Area as an example, there may be plenty of jobs in San Francisco, other parts of the West Bay, you know, in your, your large cities, but people increasingly, uh, particularly low-wage uh, workers, are located far away from there, which makes those jobs more difficult to both access to apply to, but also to want to take. What do you think, Ulrika? Um, yeah, this is a super interesting question. So optimal choice of location for different firms and different industries. Um, urban economists, you know, think about uh, nothing but that. I would say, though, so, so you know, you might say, whoa, why is everything, you know, in tech accumulated here in Silicon Valley, um, where everything is very expensive, can't we kind of branch out more and distribute it more? And of course, firms are trying to do that. I would say, though, um, we should not forget about the value of having people interested in, in similar ideas, coming with similar backgrounds um, uh, in one place. So that's something that did indeed get lost um, during all this work from home time. And that's what, you know, puts a little bit of a question mark over this idea. We will work much more from home now. Um, I think, you know, the, the the Google manager might say, my engineers tell me I did many more lines of coding during working from home. So what's wrong with that? But in terms of having this sparkle of idea that comes from having many people bunched into one room and exchanging idea and this innovative new angle coming up, that's what's missing right now. So there are some reasons for the seemingly irrational um, bunching of people in, in certain regional areas. Yeah. Let's bring in Steve from Richmond, who has a question about the data we're looking at. Hey, Steve. Hi. Yeah. Um, I had a question about the Paycheck Protection Program. I'm reading a lot of anecdotal comments online that um, small businesses are intentionally creating job openings that they can't fill in order to receive the paycheck protection money and this artificially inflating the number of job openings. That's such an interesting question, Steve. Callum, do you want to, have you heard anything about this or should we kick it to Ulrika? Um, I guess I would say two things. One is that the uh, rise in vacancies uh, is not just a U.S. phenomenon. So um, the calculations that we did uh, suggest that across the, the rich world as a whole, all rich countries, that vacancies are currently at about 30 million, which is an, all, an all-time high. So this isn't just a U.S. phenomenon. Um, and so that makes me think the rise is genuine in the U.S. rather than a function of the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, the second, actually three things. The second thing I would say is that large businesses are also creating lots of vacancies, whereas PPP was really for small businesses. And the third one is I'm not really aware of the uh, the kind of provisions in the PPP that would allow a firm to uh, collect PPP money uh, simply by posting a vacancy online. It's really about retaining employment rather than uh, saying you'll create new employment. So. Uh, p- perhaps there are some, some minor ways in which you're able to gain the system, but I, I, I would be very surprised if it was a, 
uh, a sort of significant driver of the vacancy rate in the US at the moment. Ulrich, I want to toss a couple of other listener comments to possible explanations or partial explanations for what we're seeing in the U.S. jobs market. Uh, Noel tweets, women chose family obligations over work and coming down with COVID. Parenthetically, the gender expectations of the U.S. set that up to happen. Uh, we need paid sick leave and federal support of child care. Also, too many U.S. jobs depend on low, ultra low wages and workers finally broke. U.S. childcare situation is pretty brutal, I think, at, at, at every uh, income level. How much do you think that's playing into this, given just all of the uncertainty that we have about when kids will be in school, when they won't, and, and that realm of, uh, of the world? Yeah, I do think it plays um, a huge role. Um, I mean, I would preface it, preface it with an argument Callum made earlier um, these um, insufficiencies have been the, uh, there for years, right? And again, as you emphasized earlier, differently by different socioeconomic strata have been affecting women quite severely for years. So to some extent, you may, uh, may argue um, nothing new here. But of course, on the other hand, um, COVID just made it literally impossible for many of us women to continue working uh, the same amount. And if we had uh, an employer which didn't have a lot of flexibility, that might have broken the system we had established in our families. And we decided, well, we just have to quit and, and have to be there for the kids because there's no other solution. And by the way, this is continuing. I mean, even with the um, renewed emphasis on trying to keep schools open, you know, every couple of days, half of the class might be sent home for COVID exposure. And there's all this continued uncertainty that's playing in. So, so bottom line, again, very much in line with the more traditional um, economic arguments um, of uh, frictions, labor market frictions and arrangement of childcare. I do think this is playing a huge role. In fact, I believe that will continue to play a role even if we are in a post pandemic world where everything is as it was before. I mean, once you have quit your teaching job or whatever job you are having because you just can't handle it all, it might not be completely smooth to go back in. So um, I do think that this is definitely at work. At the same time, um, I, I also do think that um, people um, during this time reevaluated um, their, their values and how much they're willing to give to their employer, how much sacrifices they're willing to make um, in, in terms of their family. And some of this may also be playing into the uh, gender-specific uh, decisions during this pandemic. Yeah. Callum, this is one I'm really interested to get your uh, comparative kind of perspective on. Jessica tweets, how many are out of work because they're disabled by long COVID or caring for someone who is, or because the relative who provided elder care or child care for their family is now themselves disabled by COVID or has passed away? And I, what I'm really interested in in this question is, yeah, I've heard this uh, from, from many folks, I've heard it anecdotally, people who've had a hard time going back to work. Where can we start to, where do you expect to see this show up in data from the U.S. or other places so that we can kind of pin down how large this phenomenon is? Um, so this is a big question, and it's very controversial. Long COVID is uh, a very poorly understood and very partisan topic. Typically, people on the, on, the, on, the, on the left think it's a very big deal, and people on the right totally minimize it as a thing. I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. Um, I mean, it's certainly true that uh, even before the pandemic, a, a, a large chunk of people of working age who were not working were not working because they were sick. It was like 20% or so in the UK. 
and, po and possibly even higher in the, in the US. So clearly sickness does play a role generally in, in jobs, job markets, labor markets. Um, I would be surprised if long COVID by itself uh, right now was having a meaningful impact on uh, the US labor market. I think fear of COVID is having a much bigger impact on the labor market and, and doing quite a lot actually to explain why a lot of people are not going back to work. I think caring for um, people who are suffering from COVID or, or suffering from the after effects of COVID, again, there will be certainly some people who are doing that, but I would be very surprised if it was showing up as millions or tens of millions of people in the, in the US data. So, you know, a lot remains to be seen. You had Finland the other day coming out and saying that long COVID was going to be the biggest healthcare, uh, chronic healthcare problem in their country for a while, but other people have disputed that. So it's all very controversial, but mm. I think these things can be a bit exaggerated. So I would probably say that this is a bit exaggerated. Interesting. So one thing I wanted to get to, one of the reasons I got interested in doing this show is I was listening to a Planet Money episode actually from a few years back. And there was a guy named uh, Jeremy Zettelmeyer, uh, economist, German economist, who was talking about the German economy and its differences with the American economy and that in the U.S., this turnover might actually be something of a strain. So let's listen in to Jeremy Zettelmeyer and then we're going to come to you, Ulrika. This is going to be cut to... Uh, for our team. So the German industry is very much geared towards helping incumbents do well. It's, you know, the unions are supportive, the state is there to lend you a hand. So we have a very generous supply of credit. We have lots of barriers to labor mobility in Germany. So there are very high hiring and firing costs. So the typical churning that you get in an economy is lower. And that's you know, arguably a good thing in the sense that we have good companies and that make good products and have good jobs that are preserved. But it also has a, a bad side. And that bad side is simply not visible, which is we are preventing the growth of, say, you know, impressive companies in, in new sectors. Right. It's, it's not a very dynamic economy. So this was obviously pre-COVID, but it just got me thinking, is there an upside to seeing you know, all this turmoil in the labor market, all this turnover and, and people switching into new positions, maybe that fit their values and lives better. Um, yeah, yes. Um, so um, two, two points I, I would make in, in response to that clip. First one is um, uh, I do think there's an upside. I do think that often, um, you know, stepping away even from firms and their growth dynamics, going to individual level, educational choices and labor market choices, often certain socioeconomic ethnic groups and equilibria where, you know, everybody, you know, did this path, dropped out of high school, did this type of construction job, et cetera. And when a big shock like this happens, say restaurant business, you started with waiting tables and, you know, kept having a career in low paying jobs. And you realize for yourself and all the people you see around you, well, this isn't working um, the way it used to work. Maybe it is actually time for me to step back and think about the value of education. These crises can be incredibly valuable. They can shake you out of a bad equilibrium. Um, the, the US news, I believe New York Times in particular, covered how um, entrepreneurship was um, increasing post-COVID, I mean, post the first wave of COVID in particular among immigrants. So immigrants being willing to go for higher risk potentially 
higher payoff opportunities rather than following whatever kind of job path people in their local group had done. Had done. So definitely uh, there can be this positive side effect. However, one thing that hasn't entered much into the economic debate, uh, which uh, um, had, was pointed out in that clip, right? This trade-off is there's creative destruction. Um, you do want to allow for growth opportunities uh, versus protection. One thing that hadn't entered this as much before the current crisis and maybe the financial crisis uh, triggered that already is that crises like these can last um, can have long-lasting scarring effect on consumers, on employees, actually even on employers. Having lived through the financial crisis, we observed that consumer uh, optimism remained really low for years, a decade, even when the economic indicators were larger. If you have personally experienced unemployment, um, the scars are visible in your consumption data, as, as we have shown, for years and decades to come. Um, if you have been a depression baby, right, you really mm -hmm. experience what can be bad and it can happen with the stock market you're never going to touch the stock market again whatever great theoretical you know teaching and classes um, and abstract knowledge we try to provide to you as professors at the university if, you, if you're sitting in one of them so what i'm trying to say here is um the downside of not buffering you know not buffering the worker not providing mm -hmm. downward protection is that as a result they will remain scarred and not maybe be as productive members of the society for for years to come Thank you so much. We've been talking about what's wrong with the U.S. job market with Ulrika Malmendier, professor of economics and finance at UC Berkeley. Thanks so much for joining us. My Thank pleasure. You. That was super interesting. And we've also been joined by Callum Williams, who just heard senior economics editor at The Economist. Last couple comments to read before we go to a break. Kimberly tweets, let's hope the Republican Party wakes up and votes with the Democrats for a federal minimum wage increase. Why should anyone put their health at risk for only $7.25 an hour? Jennifer tweets, could it be that other rich countries manage their COVID response better than we have in the U.S., keeping people from work? Along with our political divisions, the aggression towards a variety of employees from customer service to election workers might play a role. Quick correction, the cut was from Freakonomics, not Planet Money. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.